Good morning, everybody. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm a pastor of the church, and along with Pastor Dan Smith, we get the privilege of reading the scripture and explaining it to you as part of our work as pastors. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read from the letter to the Romans, uh, particularly the passage that I'm going to read can be found if you're going to use the Bible that's in the pew in front of you that's provided on page 1194, or you can follow along on the screen, or if you have some electronic device, you're probably already there. Last week, we began this series in the letter to the Romans, and we said that Paul is introducing uh, uh, the gospel uh, to the Roman Christians. It doesn't mean they weren't uh, believers, or they didn't have an understanding of somewhat of the gospel. But he, when we get to Romans, you're going to see they're going to get a full um, a meal of the gospel. He's not going to leave much out. And so, with that in mind, let me uh, invite you, as uh, as C.S. Lewis encouraged us in the Chronicles of Narnia, to come further up and further into the gospel. No matter where you are. Uh, We all need to know more deeply the truths of the gospel. So hear the word of the Lord as I read. First, I thank my God, verse 8, through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow... By God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented." in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Again, may God help us to understand this, the most precious word of God. Again, I I encourage you as an invitation uh, to uh, come further in, no matter where your understanding of the gospel, we always need to go deeper. We always need to go further in to understand this incredible good news that changes everything for us. Last week, we said in a summary of the opening uh, seven verses that Paul was introducing the gospel, not as his gospel, but the gospel of God. That is, he's the originator. He is the source of this good news about Jesus Christ. And that this gospel of Jesus Christ brings about the obedience that comes from faith among all nations. Or another way to say that is all peoples. But this week, we're just going to look at this gospel and define it 
by three big headings or three big claims that Paul makes about the gospel. The first one is that it's a gift and it's a gift from God. He also says that the gospel is a power. It is the power of God for salvation. And then third, he's going to say the content of the gospel is the righteousness that comes from God to us. Those three big ideas, gift, it's a gift, it's a power, and it's a righteousness. And so let's delve in and start with the fact that Paul's claim is that this is a gift to us. But in order to understand, you have to understand a little bit of the context in which it's read for the very first time. Rome's geographical feature that people tend to know is the fact that it is uh, built on seven hills. And as often is the case, the rich and famous uh, put their homes on the hills and leave the valley to the poor and the ordinary. That is, people like Caesar Augustus, Nero, both had palaces on one of the seven hills. The forum is on a hill. There are many great homes that are built on and around these hills if you could afford it. And even if you could afford it, do you have the position in Rome to build there? Because there's only seven of them. But the ordinary, the poor, not only did they not have the means to build, but they also didn't have the position. They often had to build in what is called the Tiber River Valley, which should bring some mind to you that what do rivers do but flood. And so you could build your house and it wouldn't be long that every so often your house flooded and you'd have to build again. And so not only did they have the lower land area, but they also had the land that was susceptible uh, to the weather. And that's where typically the Christians lived. They tended to live not on the hills, but in the valley, susceptible. And so the very first time Romans is read, and don't think of it as chapters and verses. In fact, the reader who received this probably was a, a, a read it in the context of a house in which they had probably a large gathering room in which the entire Christian community, don't think of it as particularly large, around 100 people, gathered together both inside the house to hear someone read the letter from Paul to them in Rome. And because there's no chapters and verses, it was meant to be read from start to finish in one sitting. So it's as uncomfortable as it might have been to make it through the the nine or ten verses we did this morning and imagine the entire letter, 16 uh, chapters. And so Rome had about a hundred, about a million residents at the time that this letter arrived. 50,000 of those residents were Jewish. And there's been a love-hate relationship, mainly hate, between uh, the Roman citizens and the Jewish community. That is, the Jewish community was the only community that the Romans tolerated, and I mean that in the sense of they could kick them around, or treat them poorly, uh, that they let exist who would not bend the knee to Caesar as Lord. They're the only community, every other community either uh, made that a pilgrimage every year to, to worship Caesar as Lord or Rome, the generals, would just have you wiped out 
off the face of the earth. The Jews were the only people that they didn't do that to. And they were within different cities, including Rome, about 50,000 of them. But this friction about their religion and their practices began to rub against the religion and the practices of the Roman uh, Gentiles in that city to the point where when Claudius becomes the Roman Caesar, he says, I've had enough of this, be gone. He doesn't eliminate them. He doesn't kill them. He just says, get out of the city or I will kill you. And so about six to eight years before this letter arrives in Rome, all of the Jews are kicked out of Rome. Claudius dies. And we know this because we have records. When Claudius dies, the next Caesar says, y'all can come back. And so the Jews began to come back. And one of the things that happens as these Jews come back is many of the Jews, like Priscilla and Aquila, hear the gospel, why they are out of Rome, come to faith and come back to Rome. So not only do you have the 50,000 religious Jews who uh, uh, worship Yahweh, uh, but not uh, Jesus, the son of God, but then you also have those who are what I what often are called a completed Jew, one who who not only hears uh, about Yahweh and worships Yahweh, but also understands Jesus as the Messiah. But what they have found is that there are already Gentile believers there. And we're not quite sure how they got there, where they heard the gospel, but they're there, about a hundred of them. And they're really cautious about letting the Jews, Jewish believers, come into their church. Because the Romans don't seem to make much of a distinction between being a Jew and being a Christian. They kind of confuse the two, guilt by association. And so the hatred has not gone between the Romans and the Jews. And so they just now transfer it to the Christians to the point where a future one blames the burning of Rome on Christians. But here's Paul's beginning attitude toward these Roman Christians that he has never met. He does know some of them. Some of them are even, we'll see in chapter 16, are his relatives. He says, I thank my God in verse 8 through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. These faithful Christians, their reputation has gotten out. And Paul says in verse 9, I'm always talking about it. Not only are people telling me about your faith, but everywhere I go, all over Asia Minor, I tell people about your faith. Because one of the places of boasting for Paul is that the gospel is going everywhere and being received by everyone. And one of the places that we definitely want to see the church established is in the capital city. And so... One of the things that Paul does, according to verse 9, is he tells people about, hey, guys, if you think this Christianity is puny and insignificant and nobody pays attention of it, there's at least a hundred of of us in Rome preaching the gospel. Verse 10 says that Paul is planning to visit himself. I I don't want to just talk about it. I don't want to just receive letters. I don't want to just send letters. I want to show up and I want to see for myself what God is doing in Rome. But he gives another reason why he wants to come in verse 11. He says, I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 
And so the natural question that, that comes to mind when you read that is, what's the spiritual gift? What is it that he wants to impart? And some scholars, and scholars are, uh, are, are, differ on what the spiritual gift is. Some will say it's Paul's gift of preaching. It is God has given Paul a unique uh, uh, ability to communicate the truths of the gospel. And, and so the gift that he wants to impart is his preaching. Others believe uh, that it is uh, some uh, encouragement through fellowship with Paul. Paul himself, that is not just his ability to communicate the gospel, but Paul who's been transformed by the gospel. And then there's a third idea, and that is that it's the gospel itself that did the transforming of Paul, that Paul preaches about. And the truth is, we don't have to pick because all three fit the context The preaching of the gospel is what transforms people. The gospel is the power of God. And the apostle has showed up with that gospel. All are true and helpful in this context. And it's nice when we don't have to choose. Verse 13 says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. But thus far I have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as among the rest of the Gentiles. One of the questions that arises that Paul wants to come and preach the gospel is why does Paul want to preach the gospel among Christians? You see, he says, I want to, I've been prevented to come to you, but I want to come and I want to get a harvest, not just out there, but inside the church. And your natural question is, whoa, we believe the gospel. Why would he want to harvest among Christians? Because Paul always sees two kinds of people, two groups of people. And, and this is going to be very important when we go on to verse 18 and following that he, he begins to talk about the need for the gospel. But he says there's these two groups. Those people who are in the church and have a settled conviction, that is, they believe the gospel, and those that have never heard the gospel. They don't understand the gospel. I haven't received the gospel. But again, you might ask the question, well, then, if they believe the gospel, why would you preach the gospel to them? Verse 14, he says, I'm, because I'm under an, under an obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians. That's another way of saying the civilized and the uncivilized, the educated and the uneducated both the wise and the foolish. The word obligation means indebted. I am indebted. To whom? He tells us to both Greeks and and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. Paul is saying he owes people the gospel. Paul's way of thinking about this, bring it into the 21st century, is, is that you've discovered the cure to cancer. You had cancer and you don't have cancer anymore and you now have the ability to help others and not have cancer. And Paul is saying, because I have the cure of cancer, I have an obligation to everybody who has cancer. Didn't matter whether you're wise or not, you're wealthy or not. It doesn't matter whether you're, you've been to the right schools or not. It doesn't matter whether you're in the church or out of the church. I owe everybody the cure to cancer. That's what he is saying about the gospel. I wonder sometimes if we feel that same indebtedness. We've been transformed by the gospel. It has come into our heart. It it is a settled conviction. Do we also recognize that we're indebted to everyone else who's in darkness to be transferred to the kingdom of the Son? 
So Paul says, this is why I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul intends to preach the gospel, this spiritual gift to those who are in Rome and thereby evangelizing those who, who have never heard the gospel and establishing those who know the gospel, who believe the gospel, who have a settled conviction about the gospel. Why? Because it is the same gospel that leads us and transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. But it is also that same gospel that we come further up and further into and grow. It's not that Paul has a message for Christians and a message for non-Christians. It's not that Paul has a message for those in the church and those that are out of the church as if they were two different messages. It's the same message. Come further up, further in, know this, have a settled conviction, let it change your life. All right, well, if that's the gift, Paul also says it's a power. You see that in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why why would Paul say he's not ashamed? Well, because later Paul will say, I boast in Christ and Christ crucified, which is Paul's shorthand for the entire gospel. I am proud of the gospels. What he's implying is not, he says it in a negative way. I'm not ashamed. But the positive way is I'm proud of the gospel. Why? Well, he's implying that people have mocked the gospel, have dismissed the gospel in his day. Well, we know that's true in the 21st century because many of us seem to be ashamed of letting people know that we follow Jesus Christ. That is, we've got neighbors and friends and we've got people who serve us in restaurants and we've got uh, people who are in our spheres of influence and don't even know we're followers of Jesus. Why would that be? I think it's because we're afraid, just as the gospel is mocked and dismissed, that we will be mocked and dismissed. And that fear causes us to remain silent. And that's exactly how the evil one wants you to feel about the gospel. He wants you to be ashamed of it because then you won't proclaim it. If it's the power of God for salvation, the best way to check that power is to keep you ashamed of it. And therefore, you will never share it. This is nothing new. Paul said... The gospel is a stumbling block to Jews. Why? Can you imagine Paul? Paul shows up to a synagogue. Paul is a Pharisee. Pharisee. He's got the credentials to teach in every synagogue. And they say, Paul, teach us something. He says, I'm going to teach you about the Messiah. He's come. I know all about him. Let me tell you about him. I've seen him. Great. We tend to think that Jesus is the only guy who showed up and claimed to be the Messiah. There were men before Jesus and there were men after Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. So it wasn't uncommon in a synagogue for somebody to stand up and say, I have met the Messiah. And typically they would say, tell us about him. And then they would discern based on the Old Testament prophecies if this guy was it or not. In almost every case, he wasn't. And so here Paul gets up and let me tell you about the Messiah, Jesus. Well, he was born and we're not really sure the relationship between Joseph and Jesus. Can you imagine as he's trying to explain that God, the Holy Spirit, is the father of Jesus and not Joseph? Immediately, they would disqualify Jesus as the Messiah because no way could this crazy relationship between Mary and God produce 
a son of God. And, and maybe they would have been inquisitive enough to say, well, tell us a little bit more. We're pretty, we're pretty suspect of this Jesus guy. And then he goes on and says, yeah, he performed some great miracles and maybe you've heard about those miracles. But in the end, the Romans crucified him. This is, this is a, a big no-no because all the prophecies is that the Messiah would come and sit on the throne of David and rule forever. That's what it says. And so how can this guy show up? He's supposed to kick out the Romans and he's crucified by the Romans as a common criminal. No way would they follow him. That's why it's a completely a stumbling block to Jews. But he also says that it's foolishness to Gentiles because what king dies for the people? Caesar would never enter the forum and say, you know what I'm going to do for you guys? I'm going to die for you that you might live. No king dies for the people. But Jesus, the king of kings, comes into the forum and says, it's it. I'm dying for my people. No wonder it sounded foolish to them. Why is the gospel so shameful to so many today? Well, have you thought much about what the gospel claims? The gospel says salvation is free and it is undeserved. In our culture, we think good people get, have good things happen to them and bad people have bad things happen to them. And so we divide humanity into good people and bad people. I, I think that's one of the reasons that, we, that so many Americans and even the French uh, uh, had an affinity toward Les Mis. Because Javert really speaks our language. There's no way that Valjean should get ahead. He's bad. Bad people, bad things happen to. Good people like me. That's why it seems so foolish. And the gospel of Les Mis seems to resonate more with us than the gospel of Christ. Undeserved, free. By the way, that is the message of Les Mis, but... For the average person who's never heard the gospel, they don't necessarily hear that. The gospel says Jesus died for our sins. Immediately in the world, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm not that bad. Look, I've got plenty of people I could give you evidence that are worse than me. And just how bad do things have to be for a God to have to die and pay for them? The gospel also says that our goodness is not good enough. Doesn't God want our best and he'll make up the rest? God's not, I think part of our problem today in our culture is that we think that God is just making nice people better. Rather than rescuing the only kind of human being there is, ungodly. That's the argument he's going to make beginning in verse 18. Paul's proud of the gospel. Why? Because he says in verse 16, for it is, this gospel is the power of God. It doesn't bring the power of God. It's not an incantation. It's not a, a magical words. The gospel doesn't have power. It's not releasing some kind of power. Paul says it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel transfers human beings, this is from Colossians 1, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. The gospel does not 
does what no other power in earth or in heaven can do. Not just on earth, but in heaven. Only the gospel can transfer somebody from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. I know we believe the gospel here. I know because we evidence it by telling our stories. But do we truly believe that the gospel can save anyone? That's really the question that Paul is getting at when we talk about the power, including himself. The gospel does this. It makes sons and daughters of Adam. This is his language from chapter 5 into the sons and daughters of God in Christ. Two humanities, those in Adam and those in Christ. The ungodly and the saints. Who can this gospel save? I gave it away already. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you hear the boundless nature of the gospel? It's for everyone. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It is boundless. Every tribe, people, and tongue. No one is beyond the reach of the power of the gospel. Even if they don't want to be saved. Which is every one of us. We are all kicking and screaming into the kingdom. Because we think we're nice people and God owes us salvation. And he owes us nothing but his wrath. And by grace, he transfers us into his relationship with him as our father. And therefore, it is boundless who can come in. But it is also boundaried because it says everyone who believes this idea of a settled conviction. And please don't understand, Paul is not saying if you can assent to this, who Jesus is and what Jesus did, Satan can assent to these things and he is not saved. A belief is a settled conviction. This idea that I'm staking my life on it. I'm living my life in light of it. Therefore, Paul is claiming that this gospel is for everyone. And it is a gospel powerful enough to save anyone who believes. The last picture he has here of the gospel is the content of the gospel itself. And it's the most profound, explosive idea in human history. For in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is what Martin Luther, he's teaching on Romans. He's a non-Christian when he does it. And he comes to verse 17, and this is what leads Martin Luther to salvation. When he realized this incredible idea that a righteousness that comes from God, alienated to us, is accredited or given to us as if we had done it ourselves. He says, this idea alone births, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without this idea, the church of God cannot exist even for one hour. Hear what he's claiming. 
The gospel is what births the church. It's what nurses and causes it to grow and, pro- and protects it. Without the gospel, the power of God, for one hour, the church would cease to exist. Human sin has disfigured, distorted, and damaged God's creation, including everyone who lives in it. But God intends to make right. That's what righteousness means, to make right what has been distorted and disfigured and damaged by sin. But in a way, no one could have ever reasonably expected it to happen. No one could have fathomed here on earth how God would make all things right again. How? Paul will go on in Romans 6, 23 and say, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In another letter in 2 Corinthians, he says it this way. He said, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness from God. That is, Jesus paid the debt of our sin through his death, because death is required in order to pay the debt of sin. But that's not enough. He also had to make us right by giving us a righteousness that is not our own. This idea of setting things right is both a banking term, but it is also a court term. It's a banking term in this way. In the banking world, if you owe tons of money and have no ability to pay it, you are in default. You are bankrupt. You owe more than you can ever reasonably pay. God saw that about our sins, for the wages of sin is death, and the only way to pay it is to die, therefore we cannot live. So the Son of God came with infinite worth in his life and died. And that is like going to the bank and paying your debts off. All your credit cards, all your loans, everything paid off. And and bring you to the point where you don't owe anybody anything, including God. But you recognize that the problem there of paying everything off still leaves you poor. They ask, you don't owe anybody anything, but you still have no money. And so something needs to be credited or accounted to your account. And so God gives you his wealth, the righteousness of Christ. It's also not just a banking term, but it's a court term. It's as if you have gone to court because of what you have done in this life and you have been found guilty and you have been sentenced to death, and someone else has come in and said, I will pay that, let them go. Our version of that is pardoning someone or commuting the sentence, and in both cases, you're still guilty, though you're free. What we need is not just to commute our sentence. We need someone else to make us not guilty, to credit innocence to us, and that is what is meant by righteousness. Think of it this way. Not only are you pardoned, not only is your sentence commuted, but afterwards, as you're walking out of the courtroom, 
you are given the Congressional Medal of Honor and called a hero. Except you did nothing on the field of battle to earn it. The person who earned the Congressional Medal of Honor is the one who gives it. It's his, but it's credited to you as if you had done these things on the field of battle, making you a hero. And Paul says, those who believe this, it is yours. Those who have a settled conviction that this is the gospel, that it is true and it is about me, then you receive this righteousness. You have been made right with God. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's quoting Habakkuk 2.4 there. We receive this gospel through faith by believing it. And we continue to believe it every day, which is why we have to have the gospel preached to us as often as we can. Whether we're in our little uh, nook and reading the scriptures or we're in church together and we're processing the gospel or we're in Sunday school class or we're in our renewed group, we're all preaching the gospel to ourselves because we need to continue to believe this because we will not exist if we lose it for one hour. We reveal the gospel from faith to faith, that is from person to person. It's not the best system, I'm telling you. Those of you who love process and can create great processes to accomplish great goals, you've got to agree with me that relying on us to take the gospel from one human being to another human being is A, at least the most inefficient way to do it, and B, probably the least reliable way to do it. But as much as you and I can bemoan the system in which is in place, it is the system that is in place. God has chosen that we who believe it proclaim it. That is his system. This text contains some of the most important truths that any human heart has ever heard. Have we got a settled conviction? And what would that look like if we did? Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Matthew McLean. Matt, if you don't know him, and a lot of you don't, didn't know him, he, he um, very sweet personality. The, he had Down syndrome, and, and as part of that, do y'all realize in the United States, 69% of those who have Down syndrome never make it into this world? 69%. That's a euphemism, by the way. They're killed. But not only had God uniquely allowed, uh, because of Ruthie and Dot McLean, to bring Matthew into the world, but he also gave Matthew life in him. You want to talk about somebody who could give testimony to the grace and the beauty of Christ. Matthew had a couple of things that are unique about him. Oh, there were a lot. But one of them that you see on Sundays, he would sit right here in the third row and, and he would be part of the music and he always attended the 11 o'clock because he didn't want to sit with mom and dad. He wanted independence. He wanted to say, hey, I'm not a kid. 
I'm going to go sit with my parents. And so he would sit by himself in the, in the third row until the offertory. And he used that as an opportunity to always go to the restroom and then he'd come back for the message. But he would never return to the third row. He would move up to the second row where there were people because he wants to be with people. The reality is we want independence, but we need community. Nobody showed that better than the hospitality of Matthew. You ever get onto the McLean compound and as soon as you set foot, he's on his tractor riding toward you and wanting you to be part. He's always asking, well, can I pray for you? Here's what you can pray for me. Great sweetness to his life. He had a settled conviction. A settled conviction that the death of Christ was for him and the righteousness of Christ was his. And it changed everything, even for someone with the Down syndrome. Is that true about us as well? Is there a settled conviction that changes everything about us and the way we see the world, the way we interact with the world, the way that we understand people in the two categories? I know our world wants to create identities for every kind of human being. But Paul only gives us two. Those in Christ and those who are in Adam. And what's our desire for those that are in Adam? And what's our desire for those in Christ? The same. Everyone move further up and further in. And we recognize that most of this is the work of the Holy Spirit, not ours. But we've got a part to play too in proclaiming this gospel of grace that goes to everyone and anyone who believes will be saved. Let's at least have that little faith, even if we can't aspire to the faith of Matthew McLean. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that Paul is heralding some of the most beautiful truths a human heart could ever hear. And I know our world hears it and thinks it's shameful, wants to dismiss it, and literally doesn't understand. But help us to understand and be proud of the fact that you have given us righteousness, but you've also given us the, the gospel that we are indebted to share with everyone. Father, help us to have the kind of simple faith that, it, that is required to believe that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.